Divine Healing. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 2. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And again, we thank you that you've told us that the entrance of your word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. So as we study healing, we're trusting you, Father, that as we look into the word of God, that you will speak to us, that light will come. And again, as we always know, as we know, as we know, as we know, where light comes, darkness has to go. Now, you said that you are light and that your word is light. So we're just going to let more and more light shine in our hearts so that there's much less darkness. So we trust you in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, to help us with these matters. Amen. Numbers, the 21st chapter. Again, we're looking at healing in the redemptive work of Jesus and the Old Testament provision. We finished the first hour. We finished about the Passover lamb and that Jesus Christ... The redemptive work of Jesus is that he was our redemption, or he was our Passover lamb. So now we're going to look at another part that, that speaks to redemption in Numbers when we talk about the brazen serpent. Because again, all these are types and shadows that prove what he came to do and, and proved his will for healing. Numbers chapter 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who dwelt in the south, the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atherim, the route traveled by the spies sent out by Moses, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And the name of the place was called Hormah, which means a band or a devoted thing. Verse 4. Now listen to this in the Amplified. Listen to verse 4 in the Amplified. And they, now they is Israel. And remember, Israel is a type of the church, right? And we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head and we are his body. But I... <laughs> This verse, the Amplified, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient. Now, this doesn't sound like Christians at all, does it? And the people became impatient, depressed, and much discouraged because of the trials of the way. Now, think about the picture. God is leading these people. God is leading these people to the promises. Along the way, there are trials. <laughs> I mean, it's just so simple. I mean, we just read these little simple verses, but when you really think about it, God's leading every single one of you to a destiny, you see. But you know what? You're no different. I'm no different than anybody in this book. Along the way to the things that are promised us, there are trials. And there are stumbling blocks. And we are tempted to become impatient, depressed, and much discouraged because of the trials along the way. God never said there wouldn't be trials. In fact, he promised the opposite. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he said, get really upset 
and angry because I love you anyhow. <laughs> Just checking to see if you're awake. No, he said, in this world you will have tribulation, but he said, be of good cheer. So let me see your good cheer look. That's why we're in trouble. God help us all. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world of the power to harm you. But in the world, there's tribulation. We're trying so often to pray for God to remove the tribulations. And God doesn't necessarily remove the obstacles. He just always makes a way of escape from the obstacles. And we're going to see that again laid out here. So they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient, depressed, and much discouraged because of the trials of the way. And what always happens when people get depressed, whoever's leading them gets attacked. This is your fault. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and we loathe this light, contemptible, and unsubstantial manna. In other words, they had supernatural provision, but remember they were in the wilderness for all these years because of their own complaining and murmuring. Remember the whole story. They took 40 years to travel an 11-day journey. You do remember that, don't you? It was an 11-day journey had they obeyed the Lord. But because they complained and murmured and did their own little trip, they wandered. They made themselves wander and wander and go in circles and go in circles for 40 years. I mean, we are pretty familiar with Bible stories, and sometimes we just, again, say that very quickly. But think about that. If you had an 11 days, in 11 days you can be, what if you could be where you wanted to be right now spiritually in 11 days? What if you could be where you wanted to be physically right now in 11 days? Whatever. What if you could be there in 11 days? And it took, but you don't get there for 40 years. 40 years. Most of you in this room aren't even 40 years old. There's only a few of us that are, that are 40 or over. 40 years. When I think of everything that's happened in the last 40, 40 years of my life. I mean, 40 years of my life. Everything that's happened since 1965 when I graduated from high school as a 17-year-old boy. <laughs> 40 years of everything I've experienced in 40 years. To think that I could have, had I made right decisions 40 years ago, I wonder what I could have been doing for the Lord today. I mean, you know, that's, now that's an opportunity to get depressed. <laughs> but the point is, today is the day of salvation. Today is a brand new day full of brand new mercies and let's learn our lessons now and let's actually 
obey the Lord, like we said in the last hour, and keep God's word in front of our eyes, keep God's word in our mouth, and keep God's word coming into our ears, okay? But let's get back to this and see what we're actually looking here to see. People became much depressed and discouraged because of the trials, and the people spake against God and Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and we've grown really sick and tired of all this contemptible manna. But again, let me say, I started to say, and I got off on it. I'm sorry. Uh, they're going there. You know, God didn't have to give them anything, but manna was supernatural provision because he loves you so much. He'll sustain you. But see here again. Oh man, I don't want to get off in the wrong track here. God, you guys are still here, aren't you? Some of you are nowhere, are nowhere near where you need to be financially or anything else. But God somehow, I mean, you're still here today, aren't you? Right, just about, right? He sustains us. Even in the midst of all of our lack of information, our ignorance, what have you, God, somehow you look back and you go, I don't know how, but I'm here today. I'm still here. But being sustained is not God's best because God wants you blessed, not just sustained. But here they began to complain even against that which sustained them. And that's dangerous. It said because they did that, because of that, it says, then the Lord. In other words, let me just read it again. The people spoke against God and Moses. They began to complain. And what happened? It says, then the Lord sent fiery burning serpents among the people. And they bit the people and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Now, watch this. What do they ask? Pray to the Lord. Listen real carefully now, because we teach this and some of the other things as well, like with Moses at the Red Sea. But really watch this pattern. They come to Moses and they say, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prays for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent of bronze and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. Now, the pattern I want you to see or the thing I keep, I'm trying to emphasize just right there that's important about every aspect of our Christian experience is the fact that often, it's like we said about tribulations. In the world, you're going to have tribulations. Throughout scripture, you'll see God's people asking God to take away from them the problem. When often, most of the time, the situation is God doesn't remove the problem, but God makes a way for you to be free from the effects of the problem. Did you hear that? They said, pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents. Does God take away the serpents? Does he take away the serpent? No. But he gives them a way of escape. And that's the thing that we learn in the New Testament in Corinthians as well. God will not allow you, God will not allow any one of you in this room to be tested or tried or tempted above 
your ability to handle it. That's a wonderful promise. That means if it's come at you, for God to allow whatever it is that's happened in your life to come, a lot of it, remember, isn't probably God's fault. It's probably your fault, the problems, because of stuff we haven't done. But the point is, God in his love for us will not allow us to ever experience something that we don't have the goods to handle. Another way of saying that is this, if it's happening to us, God sees something in us that can survive, much more than survive, but that can overwhelm and conquer it. Hallelujah, that's the good news. God will not allow you to be tempted, tested, or tried above your ability to bear it, but will always make a way of escape. Will always, with the temptation that's on you, make sure that there's a way, like the Amplified says, that there's a way to a safe landing place that you might escape from that situation. Now, I love that. I love that. And that's kept me a lot. I don't, if it's come at me, for God to allow it to come at me means that I have the goods, there's something in me that knows how to handle this. Now I've got to find out what that is and I've got to implement it. I've got to put it to work. But here, let's stick on the thing about healing. They're being bitten, people are dying. The Lord's solution to this, he gives them a strategy. He said, take and make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And when somebody's bitten, if he looks at it, they'll live. So verse nine says, I love it. And Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole. And if a serpent had bitten any man, when he looked to the serpent of bronze, listen to the Amplified, when he looked to the serpent of bronze, attentively, expectantly, expectantly with a steady and absorbing gaze, he lived. Hallelujah. Now remember that this serpent is a type of Christ. A lot of people that used to shake them up when they said, well, how can a serpent be a type of Christ? But remember him, this serpent, and even being a bronze, bronze in typology always represents humanity or man. When something is bronze, it speaks of man, not divinity, it speaks of humanity. But it was a serpent of bronze that was put on a pole. It's a type of Christ who was made to be sin for us being nailed to the cross. So them looking at this serpent in that year, in that day, any of them that continued, listen, any of them that continued to gaze upon that bronze serpent. Who's that bronze serpent a type of? Jesus Christ. Anybody who continued to gaze upon that bronze serpent with the steady, absorbing, expectant gaze lived. Hallelujah. This is where we get the most basic statement of all our Christianity. When you first get saved, people would tell you, keep your eyes on Jesus, right? But the very same thing, healing came to all of them when they looked to the cross is what we're trying to spit out right now before I take so much time that I bore you to tears. Healing came to anybody who'd been bitten when they looked to Jesus, when they looked to this serpent on this pole, which was a type of Jesus on the cross. Today, if we will look to the cross with the steady, expectant, absorbing gaze, we will live. Hallelujah. 
But I always used to, when I teach that, if can you imagine you've already been bitten and you're on the ground and you got two million people and snakes are everywhere. And think of the sound effects, if you saw this in a movie. People being bitten by serpents. Just think, you know, people yelling all over the place being bitten by snakes. And you're supposed to, and you're, and you're, and here's this pole, and I always, you know, and you're, everybody around you is getting bitten. You've already been bitten a bit, but you know, you're, and you're trying to look at this and tell me you're not tempted, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You get to look to the side and that, because everybody's screaming and biting, being bitten, what having you. But so you've got to make yourself look at this. Whoever continues to stare, to gaze expectantly, longingly, this cross will live. Hallelujah. There's just all kinds of things that will distract us. You see, it's just today. This is, it's so basic, but this is healing in the redemption. This is healing in the Old Testament. The bronze serpent is a type of the atonement of Christ as their curse, as their curse was removed by the lifting up of the serpent. So Paul says, our curse was Removed by the lifting up of Christ. Galatians 3.13, where it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. Now, let's go to Isaiah 53, which is known as the redemptive chapter of all scripture. Isaiah 53. Hallelujah. Some theologians say that it's possibly the most important you know, prophecy in all the Old Testament, all them. But let's look at, let's start from verse one, Isaiah 53. And again, this is the great redemptive chapter of the Bible, the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption. Isaiah 53, verse one, who has believed and trusted in and relied upon and clung to our message of that which was revealed to us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been disclosed? For the servant of God grew up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness or royal or kingly pomp that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, they said that even if you read some of these old, old, like I said, Josephus, these things, there were accounts of people who lived at the time of Christ and Jesus was just a normal looking fella. I know in some of these wonderful portraits, he looks like whoever you ladies, I don't know whoever your favorite example of masculinity is. And, but anyhow, who, you know, it says that there was nothing about him that made him stand out. He, he was a sheep from the midst of the fold. Like I said, just another one of the sheep. But verse three says, he was despised. Now, now really listen as we go into this now. He was despised and rejected and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and pains. We're gonna read it from the, from the King James on the outline in a moment. He was a man of sorrows and pains and acquainted with grief and sickness. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him. Surely, though, he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, our weaknesses, and our distresses. And he carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, 
smitten and afflicted by God. In other words, when they saw him on the cross, they felt the people that were there at that time, you see the cross, remember, was an offense. Like Paul says, the cross is an offense to the Jews and a, stu and a stumbling block to them because anybody who was crucified was cursed. They felt through all the generation was cursed of God. So they esteemed him to be smitten and cursed of God. Well, you see, they weren't all that wrong, were they? Because he was cursed of God in that he became our curse for us so that we might not have to have that curse on us. Hallelujah. That's the whole story. Verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our guilt and iniquity and the chastisement that was needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him and with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. Hallelujah. Now look on the outline at the top of page two there. Let me read it from the King James. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse four, surely he has borne. I mean, surely it's a powerful word for them to put in there. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace is upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Now, I've got down here just point A and point B. The word grief there, which says, Surely he hath borne our griefs. The word there is, in the Hebrew, it's, it's a word, sholi. It's C-H-O-L-I. I don't have it on the outline. But it's translated sickness. And it means sickness in all these other passages that I have listed there. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 28, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 1, and so on and so on and so on. So what it says is, surely he hath borne our griefs. I mean, it flat says that he bore our sicknesses. And even the word born there, I've got down here, is this Hebrew word nasah. It means to lift up, to bear away, to convey, to remove to a distance. It's a Levitical word. It's the word that's applied to the scapegoat that bear away the sins of the people. Remember that Jesus bore the sins without the camp. In other words, when you read the New Testament, that means outside of the camp. And that's exactly in Leviticus what had to happen with the scapegoat. God forgave through the atonement. He healed through the atonement. But I want you to turn to Leviticus 16 for a moment. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And this is again, this issue about the scapegoat. I want you to see this because Jesus, there were two goats that had to take care of the sin and the iniquity, what have you. And Jesus actually was the type of both of these goats. And it's important to know that because you're gonna see again some typology here that's important. So Leviticus 16 says, uh, the Lord's given instructions. Verse one, it says, and let me see if I want to read all the way, all that way back there because of all the time that we would take. Uh, okay, verse five, let me start in verse five. Leviticus 16, verse five, speaking of what Aaron, the high priest had to do. 
He shall take at the expense of the congregation of the Israelites two male goats, two male goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall present the bull as the sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house and the other priest. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats. One lot for the Lord, the other lot for Azazel, which means removal. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But on the goat on, the goat on which the lot fell for removal, or Azazel, which is a Hebrew word, on that goat, it says, shall be, he shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over him that he may be let go into the wilderness for dismissal. Okay. Now, come on down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the sins of the people, and bring its blood within the veil into the Holy of Holies, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and upon the mercy seat. And before the mercy seat. Now again, there's one and it shows the scripture there. Reference goes, takes you to Hebrews 2.17 when it speaks of the fact of what Christ had to do with his blood. But verse 16 says, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the Israelites and because of the transgressions, even all their sins. And so shall he do for the tent of meeting that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, just jump on down again. I just don't want to take all the time to go through it all. Verse 18 and he shall go out to the altar, burn offering in the court, which is before the Lord, and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the goat and put it on the horn to the altar. Verse 19, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When he's finished atoning for the Holy of Holies in the tent of meeting and the altar burn offering, he shall present the live goat. Now watch what he does with the live goat. Now one goat is just killed, flat out killed because... Uh, and it's for the sins of the people. And again, Jesus is a type of this goat, but he's also a type of this one. And Aaron shall lay both his hands. This is verse 21, Leviticus 16, 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the Israelites, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them upon the head of the goat. The Amplified will now say the sin bearer and send him away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is timely, ready, and fit. The King James says, he'll be taken by the hand of a strong man into the wilderness and let go. Verse 22, the goat shall bear upon himself all their iniquities, carrying them to a land cut off, a land of forgetfulness and separation that's not inhabited. And the man leading it shall let the goat go in the wilderness. Now, just read all that because, again, all through any major Bible college, it will teach you that the scapegoat, this is a type of Christ, an absolute type of Christ. Jesus Christ took our infirmities. He took our sicknesses. And he didn't just take them and leave them there. He removed them away to a far place. He took them to a wilderness, to a far place. And there they were left in the wilderness. Hallelujah. No longer to be remembered, a place of forgetfulness. No longer to be remembered. Our sins are no longer to be remembered. We're going to quit thinking about what happened in our past. And these diseases and sicknesses that were upon us, whatever the penalty was for these things. You see, now back to Isaiah 53, 
It says here again, where it's, and just look in the outline, it says, surely he bore. Now that word bore, like I said, is Nassau. And it's this Levitical word that's always used about the action of the priests when they took something away from God's people. When atonement was made, when atonement was made, when atonement was made for God's people. This word, he says, surely this dry plant, this Jesus, this this Lamb of God, what he's going to do is bear something away. But what is he going to bear away? He's going to bear away our griefs. And the word griefs there, like I said, is choli, which is this word for sicknesses. It says that he bore our sicknesses. And he carried our sorrow. And the word sorrow is the word for pain. Now I've got down here in the next paragraph, underneath B, not B, but the one underneath. It says both Nassal and Sabal, which is the word for carried, are the same words that are used in Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 for the substitutionary bearing of sin. Both words signify to assume as a heavy burden and they denote, they always denote actual substitution and a complete removal of the thing that's being born. So again, what we're saying here is that Jesus Christ was not only our sin bearer, but he was our sickness bearer. He took these things from us and he bore them out in the wilderness and let them go. Now this is again what's taught all through here. Now a lot of people, uh, they'll say, you'll have theologians that will say, well when it says that he carried, or that when he bore our, our, our um, what's this, <laughs> bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows, that they spiritualize that and say that has nothing at all whatsoever to do with anything physical. He took our grief, he took our sorrow, he took all the pain from this, from this life of sin away from us. And they say that it has nothing to do with actual healing. But it's pretty funny when you think that because Jesus Christ himself now, remember, is going to quote this passage in Matthew chapter 8. And the Bible says all scripture was written by men as they were moved upon by the Spirit of God. And let's watch. Now turn to Matthew 8. Turn to Matthew 8 as we go to the next part and we begin to look at it in the New Testament. And let's look, how does Jesus Christ or the Spirit of God himself, how does the Spirit of God himself interpret Isaiah 53? All right. Well, let's look in context. Now, verse 14, Matthew 8, verse 14. And when Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying ill with a fever. This is Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying ill with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began waiting on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were under the power of demons and he drove out the spirits with the word and restored to health, how many? He restored to health all who were sick. And thus, now look at verse 17. And thus he fulfilled, everybody say he fulfilled it. And thus he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He himself took in order to carry away our weaknesses and infirmities and bore away our diseases. Hallelujah. Now, please don't let that be too simple. What I mean is it's simple, but this is why now you take that information and you go back and you think about that word bore and carry and you think about the scapegoat and you get the picture of Aaron laying hands on this goat, confessing all the sins and the iniquities and see whatever penalty. And this is the thing you see, 
all of the sins because man couldn't handle it. So symbolically, they laid hands on this goat and they confessed all the sins of Israel on it. And this, it, it, those goats not only bore the sin, but you see, they bore the penalty. The other goat was killed. One was let go, one was killed. They were both a type of Christ. Jesus Christ had to pay the ultimate price for sin, which is death. Sin finishes in death. But he also became our sickness bearer and he bore our sicknesses for us and carried them away into a strong place to let them go, a place of forgetfulness forever. Now here Jesus, like it says, it says in the King James there in that verse in Matthew 8, it says, when the even was come, they brought unto him, this is on the outline, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities, and he bare our sicknesses. Now just think about it for a moment, no matter how many times you've heard it before. Listen, when we taught on righteousness, we taught just a little bit about substitution and identification. He was our substitute. Is that right? Yeah, it was. If he bore these things, how can it be right in the justice system of heaven for us to have to continually bear them? Remember when I said, if I give you the keys right now to my vehicle, and I tell you, it needs to be moved, and you say, I'll go move it for you, Rod. And you go outside right now, and you start that van up, that people mover, and you, you go get it for me. It's over in a car park down there on Snow Road. It's about a half a mile away. You go get it for me, and you bring it out in front of this church, all right? You hand me the keys back up here. And then at the end of this session, I say, okay, I've got to go get the car now. Give me the keys. Thank you. And I'm going to go walk down Snow Road and half a mile to the car park, and I'm going to go get the car. Well, if you were the one that moved the car for me, more than likely you would speak up and say, Rod, the car's right out front. You don't have to walk the half a mile. You don't have to go to the car park and bring it back. I've done it for you. But I could say, well, appreciate it, but I'm going to go ahead and take the car, drive it back to the car park, leave it there, and come back, and then I'm going to walk back to the car park, and I'm going to do this whole thing over again and bring it back here so that I can do it. Well, now, you're going to look at me and think like the old joke, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home right? Or they've got one oar in the water and the other oar is totally out. The point is, why are you trying to do, Rod, what's already been done for you? I've already got the car. I am the substitute. I've already done for you what you would have had to do, Rod. Why do you want to go do it again? That's silly. It is silliness. Why do you want to go do again what I've already done for you? Jesus Christ took our infirmities. He bore 
our sicknesses and he carried them away. Now, because he's done this, we don't have to bear them today. This is redemption. This is part of the redemption. Remember, what's the very first verse we started with? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not one of his benefits, who forgiveth all thy sins, who healeth all thy diseases. Don't forget one of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Don't forget it. I have to find this truth out and then begin to release my faith again for this to be fact. I don't have to bear this. This is why when we read in Ephesians about the armor of God, remember the Bible says that you have to, that you need to lift up the shield of what? Faith so that you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, right? But you can have a shield, but you have to lift it up. When something's coming at you is when you need to lift the shield up. I said when something's coming at you, you need to make sure that shield is up because that shield is the only thing that's going to stop that other thing from hitting you. What's that shield called? It's a shield of faith. What is faith? Basically, faith is what you believe. Do you hear me? Are you holding up in front of you right now when that stuff comes? Because the issue is not whether or not it will come, because it will come. These things will be fired at you. Nobody said it wouldn't be fired at you. But the issue is, do you have up in front of you what you believe? Because it's only your faith that will stop that stuff from breaking through your perimeter and striking your flesh. Hallelujah. Raise above, it says, lift above all else the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I mean, it's just a crucial, crucial thing. We've got to get this right. This armor of God, this armor of God, putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand all the plots and the slanders and it says and the, all these wiles of the devil, all these strategies of the devil, okay? Now, I guess I got enough time. Now, we're going to actually go now actually to the communion chapter because of, for the Passover chapter. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11 in light of all this. But Jesus Christ was our substitute. He bore our sicknesses and diseases. That's what it says, at least. That's what it says. Jesus healed all that were sick so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Hallelujah. And remember, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I just want to see where I want to start, because often we, we, start, we don't start soon enough. But I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is start in verse 17, okay? Now watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Healing in the New Testament. But in what I instruct you next, he said, Paul said, I do not commend you. 
Because when you meet together, he said, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now think, think about even that statement right there. Paul is talking to a church basically and saying, guys, you're meeting together, but you know what? Uh, when you meet together, things don't get better. <laughs> things get worse. Isn't that what he just said? Now let's find out why. Why were things get, they're meeting, but things are getting worse. Why aren't they getting better? Verse 18, from the first place, he said, when you assemble as a congregation, I hear that there are cliques or divisions and factions among you. And I in part believe it, for doubtless there have to be factions or parties among you. In order that they who are genuine and of approved fitness may become evident and plainly recognized among you. Verse 20, so when you gather for your meetings, he said, listen, now really listen. If there's divisions among you, if there's cliques, if there's factions, Listen, he said, for when you gather for your meetings, <laughs> he said, guys, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Because when they gathered, they ate. I said, when they gathered, they ate. But listen to, listen to this language. Listen to what he says. He said, when you guys gather together, he said, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. He said, because when you guys come together and eat, he said, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Now watch. He said, for in eating, each one of you hurries to get your own supper. First, you don't wait for the poor and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. What? Verse 22. What? He said, do you have no houses in which to eat and drink? In other words, if that's something you want to do, if you're that shook up, go home and eat, go home and drink. But he said, when you come together, and you partake of the Lord's table, he said, you don't do it stupidly. You don't come and just get drunk and, and play at this stuff and uh, push it away and I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get it first. And he said, what, do you have no houses in which to eat and drink or do you despise the church of God and mean to show contempt for it while you humiliate those who are poor and have no homes and have brought no food? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, most certainly I will not. And now this is where most preachers always take off. They start reading from here. He said, for I received from the Lord himself that which I passed on to you. It was given to me personally that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was treacherously delivered up and while his betrayal was in progress, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this to call me affectionately to remembrance. Similarly, when supper was ended, he took the cup also saying, this cup is the new covenant ratified and established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to call me affectionately to remembrance. Now verse 26, for every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are representing or re, remember to represent means to re-present something, to present it again. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are representing and signifying and proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death again. In other words, you're declaring every time you take communion, he said, you're declaring again everything that the redemptive work of Christ was about. So then verse 27 says, 
Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a way that is unworthy of him. Now, again, the King James says it better there. I've already referred to it twice today. Whoever partakes of this unworthily. It doesn't say unworthy if you have a King James. It says unworthily. And the word means to not esteem the value of. Whoever partakes of this bread and wine without esteeming the worth of it, now I'm just going to read you what the Bible says, will be guilty of profaning and sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man thoroughly examine himself. And only when he has done so should he eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discriminating and recognizing with due appreciation that it is Christ's body eats and drinks a sentence, a verdict of judgment upon himself. And here again is verse 30. Like I said, I mean, what do you do with this verse? Listen to it in the Amplified. That careless, that careless and unworthy participation is the reason What do you do with that verse? That's the answer. You see, to know what the body of Christ represents, to know that he that is joined unto the Lord is one body with the Lord. But you back all the way up, the issue is there's divisions and factions in the church. Is that right? That's the main issue that Paul's talking about. And he said, when there's divisions and factions in the church and you come together, it's for the worse, not for the best. Because when you partake of that bread, and partake of that drink, you're representing everything that the body of Christ came to do. In the body of Christ, Jesus Christ came to break down the dividing wall of hostility that was between us all. He came to destroy everything that was between us that caused us to divide. In Ephesians it says, he did this, the Jew and Gentile, that there might be one brand new man created out of these two other races, all Gentile races, all the Jewish races, he said so that he might destroy the enmity and bring the feud to an end. Amen? That's the whole thing Christ came to do. We are one body, one faith, one baptism, one love, one God. But we come together in our little churches, and he said, when you do this, and you're speaking against that church down the street, or you're speaking against that church up the street, are you talking about how you're superior to them or there or whatever? And, or there's all this unforgiveness and this enmity in your spirit. The very thing that you're celebrating is the thing that happened to destroy all that division and bring all that unity and healing. So I said, if you do this and you're not esteeming the worth of what you're doing, you are drinking damnation unto yourself. He said, because you walk right out the door after declaring something that's a holy covenant act by drinking this wine that represents the blood of Christ that redeemed us from sin, and I'm eating this bread that represents his body that was broken for my body so that my body doesn't have to be broken. And then you walk out the door and you still speak ill of people. You, spill, you still curse people. You, you, you just entertain all these wrong thoughts about other churches and stuff. 
And he said, this reason, this, and he said, it's for that reason, partaking of this stuff unworthily that many of you, I can quote it, but read it, that careless and unworthy participation is the reason many of you are weak and sickly and quite enough of you have fallen into the sleep of death. In other words, it says, you've died, people are dying prematurely all over the body of Christ because they don't understand what the blood and the bread represents. But you see, that's all the negative, but let's get to the positive. What is the inference here? The inference is here that, first of all, even if we were, we'll get to, I've only got two minutes, so I've, got, I've only got one minute, so I've got to hurry. But back in the book of James, it says, is there any sick among you? Think about that. Why is it being asked like that? Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and he shall anoint them with oil and pray the prayer which is of faith and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's, con if he's con committed any sins, the sins will be forgiven him. Is there any sick among you? Ideally, remember, we're going to go through a ton of scripture in the next six hours. There's not supposed to be sick amongst us. If there is, they're supposed to be healed. Hallelujah. Plain and simple. But we're to examine ourselves. But healing's all through. Now, this is just an introduction, but then it finishes. I got to hurry. For if we would searchingly examine ourselves and detect our own shortcomings, recognize our own condition, we should not be judged in penalty decreed by the divine judgment. But when we fall short and are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined and we are chastened, but we're chastened so that we might not finally be condemned to eternal punishment along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you gather together to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together to bring judgment on yourselves. About the other matters, I'll give you directions personally when I come. Father, we thank you for the communion table. We thank you that healing is available is what we're trying to say, Father. But that there are many reasons that there are many sick amongst us but it's never been your will, ever. And Lord, we thank you as we pursue these things that we're gonna find solutions and we're gonna rebuild, we're gonna put a ladder up where we can climb out of these pits and get back into solid ground. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.